Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this month's donor pick of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to seize the day, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. From now on, Patrick, call me Nuwanda. <laughs> as long as you call me Oh Captain, my captain. Deal. <laughs> All right. But wait, there's more. After an initial appearance on our Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom episode, Jacob Neff rejoins us to talk about the late 80s classic Dead Poet Society. Welcome back, Jacob. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hopefully this episode is one of redemption for you, as we know that... <laughs> Spoiler alert, none of us really cared for Fallen Kingdom that much, and so that wasn't really a great debut entry for you on the field film world. So Yeah, that was a bit rough. <laughs> well, this film was by far a runaway pick for our from our donors, and we're excited to talk about it in detail. But first, we wanted to give our spoiler-free thoughts via our one-word takeaways. And as we'd like to always do, Jacob, why don't you get us started as our special guest? All right. Uh, well, my one-word takeaway is legacy. Let's face, this seems like just another in a long line of coming-of-age films with a group of boys and rebellious streaks stumbling their way to adulthood. You could also mistake Robin Williams' John Keating uh, for storing that rebelliousness by being rebellious himself. But when you take a closer look, we realize that uh, what may seem like rebellion, and that's certainly how the institution perceives it, is more about a brilliant man. He is an honors graduate of the same school, after all. He's using a different approach to achieve an even better outcome while still maintaining the school's pillars of tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence, just not in the way people expect. So in the end, while the boy's journey is significant to the film, the primary conflict is John Keating striving to inspire greatness in these young men and to challenge them to see the world in new ways and to live their lives to the full. In short, he's less concerned about himself than he is in leaving a legacy in the lives of his students. Fantastic. If that was a movie review, I would go see this movie in a heartbeat if I didn't already love it. So <laughs> great, great way to just basically sum up the essence of this film, Jacob. Yeah, for sure. Aaron, Aaron what about you? I, I just noticed in my notes I wrote down the wrong words that are not in corresponding with <laughs> the, the show note doc. <laughs> So I, I don't know. I guess I have a lot of them. I'm going to I'm going to go with form here. And the reason is because this film formed me in more ways than I realized. Um, when I rewatched this for context, this was a top 10 film of all time for me growing up. That's how I remember it, mostly because of the nature of just the young boys and the idea of seize the day and feeling romantic about the arts and poetry and becoming a free thinker and not conforming to others. And that all stuck with me that, and I loved Ethan Hawke with a passion. This and reality bites really are the two films that created the Ethan Hawke fan in me that I am today, but I haven't watched this in like 20 years. And I have no idea why, to be honest with you, it's always been just one of those movies that I've thought about. And I was like, oh, I should rewatch that. Another one actually is A Few Good Men, which I mentioned to you today, Patrick. I was like, I should rewatch that. And it just, it never comes up because I'm always watching new stuff. And so it's harder to get to some of these old ones. I just mentally just, nah, I remember it fondly. I don't need to rewatch it. Well, you know what? I'm super glad we got to do this episode because it reminded me so much of, of how this movie taught me about passion and it would become something that I really embrace so far as having 
a tattoo on my leg that really speaks to wanting to live each day with passion. I have a Henry David Thoreau quote on my wrist. And so I, I wrote poetry as a kid. You know, I, I got into that and I actually was very much, uh, you know, trying to express myself in creative ways in just like the boys do in this cave. And it's amazing how it shaped that. And then also, I think really right from the jump put me on a path to having a disdain for traditions and customs, something I, to this day that I can't stand for the most part. I just hate them. And, and this movie, just rewatching it, man, all of these things came back to me. I think that it's so much about individuality and about Keating helping these boys trying to find their own individual nature, how to teach them to live in a world where they get to make choices for themselves and they get to decide what kind of life they're going to live. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And it held up so well. I was thrilled. I was enthralled by every minute of it all over again. And I'm just so glad that this movie exists. Rip Robin Williams. We are going to miss him. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and, and spot on everything you, you said, Jacob, that you said, my, my word was influence and the first time I watched this boys was, and I'm going to call you boys because I've got the John Keating voice in my head. Uh, it was a, I think, I believe it was my freshman year in college. Like this was like 97. So this is over 10 years or a little less than 10 years after it'd come out. That's the first time I'd seen it. This thing is 30 years old, guys. 30 years old. Um, I was completely blown away when I saw the, the date stamp in IMDb. I was like, this is not that old. It can't be. But then you see a young Robert Sean Leonard, a young Ethan Hawke, a young Josh Charles, and you're like, yep, <laughs> these guys have grown up. But I remember watching it as part of uh, Rush Week for a what we called social clubs. They're kind of like cheap fraternities at the small college I was from. And it was part of one of their nights of we started watching it, and it was incredibly moving, motivating. I was like, where did this movie come from? And then we lost power. Like the whole campus lost power. And from there, we moved into a, cause I'm from a Southern Baptist church. I went to a Southern Baptist college. And so it didn't really surprise me that at one point, the group that I was hanging out with, we just started singing worship songs and we walked back through that Walt Whitman poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain. And we were thinking about the spiritual ramifications of it. And so that movie, really kind of catapulted my under, not understanding, but really more, it really reinforced motivations that I was having about my faith and things like that. So it had unintended consequences for my life. And then when I hit my twenties and I started kind of venturing out on my own, adulting more, I watched that movie again and again and again. And all of those things that you guys have mentioned really started hitting me dead center in the chest. It's also two things that I love. It's about it's a movie that takes place in high school, which I'm always going to be a fan of. And it's a movie that really it starts in the fall. I love fall based movies. I love the cover art for this, the the color palette of the gold and the red. And I will always watch this movie in the fall. So this is the perfect time to watch it for me because it's a fall movie, even though it takes place over the course of just one semester. We're getting into those kind of colder months and when I when I think about influence, it influenced the way I thought in a lot of ways. It also, I think, still has a lot of influence today with the way in which 
the script is written and talking about finding your voice, being an individual among a culture, a world, whatever, of sameness. And there's a challenge in that, right? In that, Jake, you described it as Keating promoting this idea while still holding the values of tradition at at Welton. And that's something that I didn't necessarily grab onto when I first saw this. I always thought it was like, yeah, seize the day, screw the industry, all this, you know, while attending a small Southern Baptist college with all of its rules and regulations. So I was, I look back at my 19 year old self and I go, man, you had a lot to learn. <laughs> and I still do even at 41. So I, I was incredibly influenced by it. I'm still influenced by it. Interestingly enough, I look at it differently as an adult than I did as a college student. And so it's been really fun to kind of see how my thought process goes through that kind of lens as opposed to when I was just starting out and doing this higher education and really kind of exploring what it meant to make new choices and realize that maybe some of my some of the things that I was thinking about may have been wrong or right, that I wasn't necessarily being challenged before and now I am. I wonder, kind of to kick into the conversation, this is the official spoiler part of our podcast. So in case you are looking for a way to pause this at a given point and watch the movie, this is your chance to do it. Otherwise, enjoy the conversation from here on out. As we mentioned before, this was kind of a runaway favorite for those that were, were voting for it from our donors. And obviously the three of us love it. But what do you think makes this movie such a fan favorite and why it's held up for over 30 years? I think there's a universality to it that uh, it, I mean, it seems kind of weird uh, thinking of that because it's set in an all-boys preparatory school, you know, something very few people um, can relate to. Uh, but the central themes of, uh, of Carpe Diem and how that plays out and being inspired by poetry of the arts, the challenge of the boys learning to be men, the challenge of teaching boys to be men, all these things are far more universal. There's also the relationship aspect. Everyone has had teachers or mentors of some type. Everybody um, has a, a father or had a father at, at one point. And as far as the teacher relationship, we can recognize uh, the value of good teachers in the lives of, uh, of students and, and how important they are to, uh, contributing to people's growth, to children and teens and young adults growth. Yeah. I think it's really so much because of the fact that it's all about becoming yourself and it's all about finding your own voice and being given not the right, but being given the grace and the opportunity to opportunity, yeah, to that was what I was thinking. You know, to like to pursue that, and to have an adult who is actively pushing in your life for you to try new things and maybe fail, but to experiment and to make your own choices and figure things out is contrary to how most of you, most people grow up. I mean, that's just a fact. No matter how quote unquote lenient parents are, I wouldn't say we're all going to be like Neil's dad and be as strict as saying, this is the college you're going to, and this is the job you're going to do. And this is the path you're going to take, whether you like it or not. But 
there's an element of this is the lane I need you to stay in because I've walked this path and I want to protect you and I want to give you what I think is the best for you. And here's a man who is not challenging that in a rebellious way, but who's saying, respect that. Respect what your elders are trying to teach you through their experience, but also be willing to (laughs) seize the day. I'm sure we'll say this a lot. But embrace what it is that makes you who you are and what inspires you and what makes you passionate and what makes you feel alive and figure that out. And he just wants people to have that opportunity to do that. And so he encourages it. And I think that because that's something that we all want in our own lives, we want to have people that support us in that feeling. It's easy to root for the boys in this movie. And there are really no negative aspects of them either. That's the other big reason I think it's easy to be a big fan of this movie is, you know, they're not (laughs) so many characters in so many movies. We, we, I like gray, right? I, I talk all the time about like the gray area in films, but we'll get characters who it's almost like a screenwriter believes that in order to make them quote-unquote human, they have to have some sort of major flaw. Like they've got to be a womanizer or an alcoholic or the drug addict, or they've got to have a history of theft that they need to overcome while they're discovering their love for poetry. But we really don't see that here. The boys are really pretty basic, average kids, not terrible troublemakers. And and I like that. And I think that it's easy to gravitate towards that and be like, this is fun to watch because I want them all to succeed. So that's another reason I kind of feel like it's easy to be a big fan of this one. Uh, I'd say there's also the aspect of uh, it's really something special when you see a teacher teaching that knows how to grab a hold of the students, the kids that he's, that he's teaching that he, uh, is fun and interesting and engaging. And it's, you know, we all want that from, uh, you know, the experienced teachers that we've had. Many of us have had the pleasure of having one or two teachers that, uh, really make you enjoy being, uh, under their, <laughs> under their teaching. So seeing that on the screen, seeing these boys take to take to him, recognizing what a fascinating teacher he is, is uh, I mean that's that's kind of the, the gateway into uh, the interest of the of the movie, and it uh, it only gets uh, deeper from there. It becomes more personal as uh, you know he challenges them to make the most of their life, and it forces the the person watching to consider the same kind of questions. It's just engaging on all levels. Yeah, I would agree. And what makes it interesting to me and what makes it kind of stand out is the fact that we get such a wide array of students that react to Keating. And some of them are, based on how they react to him, we see kind of their level of motivation. We see their level of involvement and appreciation for what he's doing. There's a movie that came out, I think, in the early aughts called The Emperor's Club, which kind of has the same kind of vibe as Dead Poet Society. It stars Kevin Klein, 
And it's one that I really enjoy. You could probably call it an updated or maybe a knockoff version of Dead Poet Society because it deals with a teacher who is at a prep school influencing his kids. And it really centers around him and his experiences in motivating these kids to not necessarily seize the day, but to find their own voice, to understand that it's important to leave your mark. It's one that I would highly recommend. If you're a fan of this movie, I think it's definitely up there as far as being really good. And one thing that these two share is the fact that the ideas in DPS and Dead Poet Society have not changed. They haven't stopped motivating people, specifically myself. And it, Aaron, it goes beyond seize the day. It's really about finding your voice, about discovering what it is that makes you who you are. And that changes. I mean, we know that. Who I was in my 20s is not who I was in my 30s. And definitely not who I am in my 40s because of life's circumstances. But the ideas depicted and presented in this movie are really those ideas that say, who are you now? And how is that going to shape who you become in the next three to five to 10 years? Being in a school, it's a lot more deliberate because you're in an environment where learning is the thing you do. I love that introduction to Keating for the first time after that official introduction, when you see this montage of these guys going through their different classes and they're just getting books piled on and piled on and piled on. And we know that that's like, I mean, that's what high school was. You go into class, you get your books, you get your syllabus, homework's due in two days. <laughs> and I think one of my favorites is that just, just mundane Latin class. Agricola, Agricola. Again, like, repeat. Yeah. yeah. And, I was like, and it's just, and then you get into Keating's class, which is a great setup because, of course, his class starts with him, uh, whistling. I don't remember what the name of the song is, but it's, you know, that's upbeat type of thing. And of course, thank you. Yes. Cause I'm an uncultured swine. And I think that allows us as an audience to kind of be shocked a little bit too, because we don't know what to expect. And then we get the entrance of the, the late Robin Williams, who is the reason why Dead Poet Society was one of the picks for this month. And I think this rivals Goodwill Hunting is probably my favorite Robin Williams performance because of the fact that as an actor, Knowing what I know now, he started out wanting to be a serious actor and comedy just sort of came out of him and he learned how to balance that. I think Dead Poet Society allows us to see that subtle Robin Williams that who wanted to portray that kind of person and who occasionally brings out the comedic guy that we know in appropriate ways. And so we watch him and we see these different teaching methods. And I think one of the reasons why they stand out to his students is because they're in such stark contrast. Uh, that opening lesson around the, the trophy room where he just, it's so awkward. He goes, and the two guys are like, what is this guy doing? You see that play out. And then afterwards you hear, Almost like one word takeaways that these guys are saying, man, that was, that was weird. And you've got Neil that says, but different. That was almost my one word takeaway. It was different because 
you almost see a glimpse of what each one of them is looking forward to the most about hanging out with him. Some are kind of in the dark, they're kind of hesitant. Like, who was it? Uh, the redhead guy said, do you think there'll be a test on that? I mean, there's always that guy, right? Who completely misses the point. I was that guy in some cases. But I think those teaching methods allowed students to kind of get a glimpse into the fact that it doesn't have to look like every other class. But I don't think Keating was doing that either. I think his teaching methods came out of a passion because he loved what he was doing. Whereas the other teachers, they love being teachers, but I almost see them as more like a pharisaic kind of character where they enjoyed hearing themselves talk. You know, like the guy with trigonometry goes, your knowledge of trigonometry is going to be precise. You know, and he was like, yeah, because if it's not, uh, I'm probably going to get a demerit as a teacher <laughs> because I need to make sure that this is amazing. Where Keating himself, I think, comes across as saying, teaching isn't my job. I love teaching and I'm getting paid for it. And that's what I want to be doing. And I, I wanted to kind of pose that to you guys with regard to his teaching methods. Was there anything that stood out with regard to what you think made those so special to the students that were part of his class? Well, I love that right off the bat, he's shaking things up. He's the, he has them read the full little description in the book of how to evaluate poetry. <laughs> and then he immediately said, <laughs> screw that. <laughs> Rip that out of the page. That's not, that's not what it's about. That's not, it, it's not math. It's, it's not a, it's not a science. It's, you, ha you have to feel poetry. You know, it's, it, there's no, you know, evaluating it on a scale like you can apply a apply numbers to it and uh so you know immediately he's he's shaking up their expectations he's uh showing them that he's not going to be like every other teacher um he's passionate about the subject but he's not tied to the rote ways that it had always been in the past yeah agreed and i you know i think that just by the nature of being something completely different is part of what makes him stick out. And I, I don't know that even in a normal school, he would fit the mold so much as he would be also out of place, you know, even so I, I don't, I would actually push back on something you said earlier, Patrick. I don't know that I would say that these guys love teaching. I would say that these guys love status. They love the routines and the status and the traditions and the customs that they have come to value. And, well, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe they love teaching in the sense that it's, it's just that their method of teaching, it's what they love creating clones of themselves is what they love doing. I would say they love teaching there because that's a place of prestige. If this were a public school, no way. Right. But I guess, I guess I don't think it's, it's really about teaching so much as it's about creating a clone. And I, I draw a line there because uh, there's a great conversation between, uh, it's Norman, I believe his name is and Williams where they're talking and Keating, not Williams. And he's explaining to them, uh, to him that he wants them to be able to think for themselves and the other teacher says that's not what we're here to do like that this age that's not what we want for them and even he goes into this like cynicism and he, he warns Keating he's like 
Are you sure you want them to believe these things, that they can be artists? Because they're just going to be crushed when they realize they have no talent, which is actually a fair thing to wonder, <laughs> to be honest. And so you get this idea that, like, it's not about teaching the boys as much as it is about creating them in this image of themselves. But anyway, point being, all of that makes him stand out clearly so much more. I, I like that he's versatile. I like that he's versatile. I you know, we get that great opening montage or moment rather in the classroom that Jacob mentioned where he's ripped the paper out of the book, but he doesn't rip the paper out of every book. Okay. He doesn't come in and sing every morning. One morning it's let's walk outside and let's go, you know, walk in circles and have a lesson about it. It's it's an object lesson. It's very personal. Like they're activities that teach you the thing. One of my favorite things in the whole movie is the soccer lesson where they go out to do sport and he has them read these inspirational quotes while playing classical, you know, war music on the megaphone or not megaphone, the phonograph or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it is the most wild penalty shot practice in soccer that I've ever seen in my life. But it kind of goes together and it really fits when you think about sport and what he's teaching them. And it's brilliant and it's fascinating. And again, it's just different. It's versatile. It's variety. It's not the same thing. So when you mix well, it up, I oh, you're fine. But when you mix it up, I think that is when you can keep someone engaged. It's really hard when you're in school or even at work to do the same thing over and over and over and not get very lethargic about it, not have a harder and harder time wanting to pay attention and such. But when you make it personal, when you make the boys have a stake in it in some tangible way and, and relatable to their lives in a different kind of way and interesting, people learn better. It's just a fact. And Keaton gets that. And since he is actually about teaching and having them learn something and not about just creating a clone, then this is what is going to work. And so I love that about him. Well, and he's living what he's teaching. You, you go back to uh, him uh, climbing up on the desk, which just seems like a very weird thing. Um, but he's not being weird for weird sake. He, he's showing them, demonstrating that you always want to look uh, look at things in a new way. And he tells them never, you know, never stop doing that. Always be looking at things in a new way, even when you think you understand it. You look at things in a new way. And that goes along with all these different methods that he's taking um, in teaching them. And he's uh, he's always trying new things. And, you know, I'm sure certain, uh, you know, some of the stuff he's never done before. And, you know, he comes up with it in the moment. And um, and also regarding that that soccer lesson, um, I, I think that uh, I, I find that ties into him. Um, Holding to tradition, the tradition of classical music and and sport, but doing it in a different and innovative way. You you can be you can hold tradition and not and not be a carbon copy of everything. There's there's a way to maintain the past without being the past. And I think he understands that. I think he understands the value of the past and present and how it influences the future, which is why. If this were a guy that weren't educated at Welton, who came in, quote, off the streets and started influencing these guys, 
my opinion of him would be vastly different because he's just trying to shake things up. Even, and I think this is where William's performance is so fantastic, is there is no place where he gets crazy excited unless he's, you know, playing Beth as John Wayne or, you know, showing, again, you can read Shakespeare in an updated way and be both entertaining and memorable. And that soccer scene, guys, was one of my favorites. I, I coach a U7, U8 team, and I call them the Mighty Ducks, okay, because they're just not good. What and, in yes, the world? They're just not good, but and that's, that's okay. And that's okay. We're having fun, and I hope at some at some point we'll get that kid who inspires them, or maybe I'll be the Bombay. But I I will say this tonight at my soccer practice, I wanted one of them to yell to indeed be a god, you know, before he kicked his shot. And he wasn't going to do it because, you know, these are seven and eight-year-olds. They don't know things. But anyway, what I think is great about Keating's teaching methods, first of all, he gets out of the classroom. And I think that's something that is completely different from other teachers at that school. Secondly, he does things with intent. And it's almost as if, he, as if he's a scientist because he is observing what these guys are doing. I love that during the poetry reading scene, he calls out the guy, I don't remember what his name is, I don't think he has a name, who was laughing at Knox's poem, and he got up and said, the cat fell off the roof, or whatever it was. And he sat back down, and he used that as a teaching method. He said, look, it's okay, poetry can be simple. It's easy, you know, it's, it's fine to talk about rain, or to talk about love, or a simple concept, a bird. But just don't make it, you know, make it memorable, make it matter, make it mean something. And I think that's what makes a teacher valuable is they do what he does, what he preaches. Look around you, change your perspective. He understands that learning is not static. It's very dynamic. And I think that's why his students who gravitate towards him, because not all of them did, but those that did gravitate towards him particularly Neil, I think, because we, we gravitate towards him because he's kind of the central character, kind of the, the anchor of all this. He sees not power and not influence, but motivation and the things that help him tap into who, who he is. And what I think is interesting is that for Neil specifically, he didn't put those thoughts in his head to become an actor. We get from some dialogue between uh, he and uh, one of the other boys that he wanted to. He's wanted to act for a while, but dad wouldn't let him. We know that he's got other passions out there, other things that he's interested in, and not because he's looking for more credits to put on his high school resume so that he can go to a great school. No, he's really passionate. Keating gives him and the rest of the boys permission to be who they are. And that's what I think is really interesting about him as an educator, why he's not shaking up the status quo for the sake of shaking it up. It's a byproduct of allowing these kids permission to really start to understand who they are. And should they be doing that in high school? I don't know that that's a great question to ask because it happens anyway. Kids are going to explore who they are as they get older, whether they're being kind of given permission to or not. But I think what Keating does 
in his teaching methods is he allows them to do it in a way that's sort of anchored and it's sort of through a, a navigation. He's not just freely saying, all right, go be who you are until we get to the Dead Poet Society, the updated version. And that's when I think the movie gets interesting because we know that he was part of the Dead Poet Society. I guess he was the what, ringmaster or whatever the president was. Founder. Founder. Okay, yeah. But there was there was a Dead Poet Society. There were these other guys. Quick who... trivia note. Sorry, okay. I'm going to interrupt you, and I just clicked on the X on my notes, so I'm going to get this wrong. Let me bring it back up. <laughs> um, basically, so first of all, Williams was – this was kind of leaning more into a comedy film originally, which was interesting. And I'm so glad it didn't go that route. Williams actually didn't show up on set on the first day of filming because they had the director of like Revenge of the Nerds 3 or something who was going to be directing it. And so he wanted to choose. And so he ended up getting to pick Peter Weir to do the movie. Can you imagine the difference? Like, I love those stories, like, because it makes you wonder, like, what this would have looked like had it been different. And it's also estimated that he improvised up to like 15% of his lines. Like he just, they just let him go, which is a very common Robin Williams thing anyway, because he's known for being a master at improvisation. But um, anyway, the nugget that I wanted to share was that when he's looking at the yearbook in the scene that you just brought up where they find out that he founded the Dead Poets Society and he takes the yearbook and he's like reminiscing and he kind of kneels down and he calls someone. He's like, ah, oh, Stanley, the tool Wilson. Well, the name that he calls out is an Easter egg. It's actually the nickname of his best friend. And I just thought that was one of the sweetest, coolest little Easter eggs, especially considering what the Dead Poets Society stood for and what it means for him to bring a way, his, this way for his best friend, who's not some like, you know, A-list actor best friend. This is just a normal dude, best friend <laughs> kind of thing. And he was able to like, bring him into this movie in a way that made perfect sense. And I thought that was just kind of really, really sweet little thing that Robin did. I love it. I love it. And it sounds like Robin Williams based on the things that I'm learning about him recently. Sounds just like him. So we look at this new updated dead poet society and I wonder if looking at it from an audience's point of view, do you think, do you guys think that, these guys honored that group and the essence of who they were that came before them. And, and you know, if they did, what did they get right? Or, or what did they miss that you think may have kind of encapsulated that original Dead Poets Society? I know that we don't know much about the original one, except that Keating was the founder. But what do you guys think? Well, I think it's, I mean, obviously, like you said, it's kind of hard to tell. We don't, he doesn't tell us much about it. You kind of think that, you know, boys about the same age are going to run into similar things but on the other hand i also feel like there was i get the impression that they had a greater respect uh, they were more large-minded about it that this new dead poet society doesn't seem to think quite as uh, grand as uh, as you get the impression that uh, i mean and it was pretty short-lived for how they did treat it which obviously the original probably wasn't that short-lived uh, if it was had made that much of an impact on uh, on Keating and you know for him to share with them about and you know provide the book the 500 centuries of verse that they used for it so yeah I, I feel like uh, you know 
I can kind of see it both ways. I I see that uh, the past we we want to kind of uplift people in the past beyond who they are, but also their the fact that it it stood and uh, lasted long enough to make a meaning for him tells me that it was treated differently than it was for the new group. Yeah, I agree that I don't think we really honestly have enough to go by to make much of a comparison at all. I, I just think it's a nice nod to the fact that this thing existed before. I actually don't think it matters at all what the original Dead Poet Society was or wasn't. I think that the connection is Keating, and it provides a way for him to pass this thing down to them. And it's interesting that they don't, he doesn't actually tell them about it. Like, it's not like he comes out and says, Hey guys, let me tell you about this cool thing called the Dead Poet Society. You guys should do this. They figure it out when they find his yearbook and they ask him about it. And so then he responds to it by telling them the truth, but he doesn't come out and try and sell them on this thing. Right. So I think there is an element there of being respectful of the fact that they did their homework. They did this research. They figured that, you know, he's just answering the questions and again, letting them and their desires and their curiosity kind of drive what they choose to do with the information he provides. And I think that, you know, obviously he is in support of it at the 500 is it days of verse or whatever. I love that he sent five centuries, five centuries of verse. I love that he puts the book on Neil's, you know, in Neil's room with the little note there about the, how to do the, the meeting opening and such and get, give him a start. And really he doesn't tell him anything guys. It's so cool because I, that's one thing I love about the dead poets say it's so much like the little clubs you make when you're a kid because you have like you find a little tree tree house whether you have a tree house or not you, you make a little tree fort somewhere out in the woods and you call it your your hideout and what you do there a lot of times you make rules for no girls or whatever the thing may be that you want to have this place represent in your life and this is really no different it's just a general guideline <laughs> that they have of, hey, we should center this around the arts and creativity and exploring these things. But that first meeting and even some of the later meetings, they're like, they're so freaking random. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it absolutely didn't, wouldn't have necessarily gone the same way in my mind for whatever Keating's Dead Poets Society was. And I think that that's the point, is that it doesn't matter what it was to that group of boys. It represents the opportunity and the desire to come together and explore who you are and experiment and learn from each other and just be free of these shackles that they live under at all other aspects of their life that it's a representation of that and how it manifests itself is going to be different for any group of people and so i think they get the point of it i think that they got the whole point of it in fact and I would actually be disappointed if we had gotten too much more information about what it was for Williams because and his group, Keating, sorry, because I just don't think it it's important. Well, I agree. I, I don't think it's important, but I think the absence of it is what's important to what you're saying. Because you're right, Keating is the link, but so is that opening set of poetry from Henry David Thoreau. Because whether he wrote it at that point for Neil or whether that was part of that book when he found, you know, he gave, you know, whether he wrote it then or wrote it back in 42, 
it's still the important piece of the Dead Poets Society, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. So I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to put to rout all that was not life, and not, when I came to die, discovered that I had not lived. That is universal. The concept behind what Thoreau is saying there, that carpe diem, that living intentionally, does not change from year to year, from day to day. What Keating, I think, saw in that discovery that the boys found with the Dead Poet Society and his response by giving Neil the book was him saying, it looks like these guys have essentially passed the test. I don't think he was looking for them to pass the test, but I'm saying that these guys wanted to live deliberately. They were curious. They didn't just put the book back on the shelf, put the yearbook back on the shelf and say, oh, he was a hellraiser. Well, let's see him in class. Nope. They see the Dead Poet Society and like, what is that? So their curiosity gets them. But at the same time, Keating sees something, at least in Neil, as someone who doesn't just want to know more about this cool thing, but I think has an opportunity to embrace what the spirit of Dead Poet Society actually is. And I think... Well, what's and, Go ahead. And by providing him the, the book, uh, you know, even surreptitiously, it uh, shows that he, would, he recognized the leadership qualities in Neil right, you know, almost immediately. Right. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how long it was between when they discovered the yearbook and whatever, but, um, but yeah, he, he's recognized. And it, we also, um, you know, it's not the school's idea of tradition, but it's also, uh, Keating appreciating tradition again, one of the school's pillars, um, by, uh, um, by passing that on to them. I mean, granted, he, he, he didn't, uh, uh, he didn't, uh, tell them ahead of time. And he waited until they came to him, but, but yeah, he appreciated the value it was in his life, um, and provided them that launch pad for them to make that their own. But he also did provide a, a warning. <laughs> he knew that it could lead to trouble and it's not, he, uh, didn't want them to be reckless about it. Right. But and, responsible. well, and kind of leads into my next question about this group of boys that participated in the Dead Poet Society. There were obviously some that were hesitant, Todd being one of them. And then there were, were others that kind of went along because <laughs> these were part of, these guys were part of a study group. And so why not? And then we have kind of the two standouts or three standouts, Knox Overstreet, Nuanda and Neil, all in names, which is kind of weird, but whatever. And they all respond so differently but with the same kind of spirit. And and I think that's one of the things that I like about the movie is that Keating's influence produced different results. He produced negative results. I guess you could say negative. <laughs> results that resulted in someone getting disciplined. You know, we have Nuwanda who gets the great phone call from God that says he used to have girls at Welton. That's one way that Keaton influences these boys. And then we have Neil who pursues an acting career. And then we have Knox who's like Yelp all day and wanting to go after this girl. And I think it's interesting that the movie doesn't show us everything beautiful about Keaton's influence. 
resulted. And he did. Go ahead. And he didn't. Uh, he didn't seem to necessarily influence every single person. I mean, you look at. I noticed at the very end of the movie, I was looking at the the students in the room, and there were quite a number of them just sitting in their seats. And you know, they weren't people that we knew. They weren't part of the Dead Poet Society. You know, we don't know. They may have had. He may have had an impact on them, but it wasn't uh, any kind of grand, you know, grandiose uh, output. So yeah, he had an, a different impact on everybody that led to uh, manifested itself in different ways, like you're saying. And he was adaptable. I mean, those that he felt uh, he needed to reach to a high, to a greater extent, he sought uh, unique ways to reach them, or in certain cases to embarrass them a little bit, but never too much. He didn't uh, overdo anything to humiliate anybody. It makes me wonder how that whole culmination of of a classroom the ones that we saw on screen and the ones that we obviously see who choose differently at the end what those motivations are for for those guys i mean for me i guess it would be partly not wanting to rock the boat maybe it's you don't want to get expelled um but i wonder if there's other stuff where maybe there's a part of them that things get stirred up, but they feel kind of scared of that because it's different, because it's not something that they've known that's predictable. And, you know, I've been that guy sometimes where I sit in a classroom and I'm like, I'm just going to do my math and I'm going to pass the test if I can, unless it's geometry, in which I will not. But I will continue to just do my thing and I think sometimes it's hard. I mean, look at look at Todd. I mean, for a while there, I'm watching this as an adult, and I'm like, dude, get off Todd's back. He doesn't want to go. Stop making him do this. And in some ways, I kind of felt in small moments, Neil was like, you don't have a right to do that to him. <laughs> I'm still loving it because, I mean, I want Todd to, to eventually come out of his shell. But... There are some negative impacts, at least initially, where you have this maybe unnecessary peer pressure. I almost wonder, watching that scene, would Keating approve of that? Would he be like, yeah, Todd, come out of your shell? Oh, he wouldn't do that. But would he would he step in and say, hey, Neil, let him find his own path? And would that- I, love, I love that they, uh, they didn't really hassle him about, about um, being part of the Dead Poets Society, but yet not... Um, not being, you know, not reading out loud, and he was able just to be present. Um, they didn't, they didn't really didn't give him too hard of a time about it. Maybe. I mean, I wonder. <laughs> there was that scene where Neil says, "Being in means you're in," and I don't know what that means. I, I'm assuming that means that you participate. <laughs> and then, of course, you get to that whole hilarious, like I'm stealing your poetry, and then uh, I think Cameron's book is stolen, and then. Uh, Nuan just starts playing his, his little recorder. No, like maybe Knox playing a recorder. And so it's played for laughs, but there's always a part of me that's thinking, is the influence of Keating, um, obviously it's not universal. You know, not everybody is influenced by him. Maybe some are influenced despite him, but it makes me wonder if, you know, if it, if it was, I'm not going to say it was right or wrong, but, I don't know. It's 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 hard to look at that and go. Mm, I don't know that I. 
gosh, I'm inspired by him, but I don't know if I'd go that far as to kind of kind of eagerly pressure my roommate, who's very much an introvert, into being more participatory in this. So it's it's something I wrestle with as an adult. I mean, when I was 20 watching this, I was like, yeah, get that dude off his couch. I'm that dude. I'm going to get off that couch. I'm going to participate. Whereas now I'm like, what if that's my seven and a half year old in a few years? He's like... I- yeah, I think when you're in, you're in. No, I, I agree. I think Neil says it. I mean, that's the whole point of the statement is when you're in, you're in. If you want to be in, then come in and be in and yeah. commit yourself to getting outside of your comfort zone like we all are, whatever that is for you. But you got to do something to at least attempt that. And if you're not going to do that, then it's fine if you're not in. I think that would be the problem is if you're pressuring him to be in the club when you know he doesn't want to participate. But if he is making the decision to be part of the club, knowing you're part of a club that has an expectation, then you should be able to, you should be expected to do that thing. So you don't join the soccer team if you don't want to play soccer and you just want to sit on the end of the bench. Then you just don't join the soccer team. Like that's how that works. And so I feel, I feel like it's a little bit like that. I do feel you, Patrick, like peer pressure is a, is a bad thing, you know, and I'm very, kind of aware of it as well like and I, I don't want my kids to ever experience it and i've experienced a ton of it in my life especially when i was in the navy but thanks to this movie i never was a conformist so i just was like screw you guys i'm not gonna get here i'm not gonna sit here and get drunk on every port call like i just don't do that you know i know you all that's what you want to do and you're gonna try to pressure me into it but i'm not gonna do it so I, i'm not i'm not a fan of peer pressure but i think in this case once you're in there you're in there to your point though i wanted to mention the other kids in the class that don't seemingly participate they're not part of the dead poet society they you know they're just they're they're there they they never have a connection with keating in any way i think that's fine i I think that the important thing is not that every child anywhere is meant to learn this way he's reaching a variety of students in a way that is helpful to them It doesn't mean that he's not teaching well to the other students and that they're not learning things. But frankly, there are kids who this situation probably fits very well. And they probably actually do want to grow up to be a doctor and go to Harvard and follow in the family footsteps. And for those kids, more power to them. Follow your path, buddy. They're doing the same thing in a way. They're doing what their heart leads them to do. And if that's the way they feel, that's okay. Now, I'm sure there are also probably plenty of kids in this situation who are there because they're just like our boys that we get to know, and they don't have the the friends to kind of pull them into this group, this Dead Poets Society or whatever. And so maybe they're having similar struggles and they're just, you know, they're just not in this circle yet. But I do think that there is something to be said about people who can exist within this framework of this school and actually it be a fine thing for. It's just that it's not for everybody. And when you get to a position where people are being forced to be in this world, that's when it becomes a major problem and very stunting of how these high school people are growing up. Yeah, great thoughts. Going back to uh, um, how Neil was with uh, with Todd, I mean, these are these are high schoolers. They're, <laughs> these aren't these aren't adults. 
you know, and, and he's a, he's a, a aggressive personality, not in an aggressive in a mean way, but you know, he's, he's vocal. He's, uh, he's a leader. I mean, and so he is trying to, uh, to lead and inspire Todd to, you know, come out of that shell and to be, um, be who he believes he can be. Yeah, I, I see all that. And, and the thing is, is that I'm halfway playing devil's advocate because I love that scene. And I like, what I like about Neil is the fact that, well, two things. One, this goes back to seeing how the DPS kind of starts. They, they read the, I guess the required opening. They read the opening and then Neil reads a, a poem, and then the next scene is him telling a ghost story. Because that's what kids do. I mean, there's no playbook for this. It's just a book that says to be read. And over time, they find poems in there. I think Nuwanda ends up writing his own... You no, know, is he writing his own poem on the back of that movie thing? I don't know if it's... No, else. it's a letter from the editor, or a letter to the editor. I'm almost positive. I, I, I love that scene. It's, it's hilarious. But I'm almost positive... Because at the very end, he's like, and he looks at it, he's like, from John, or from Edward, or in Ohio, or something yeah. like, I think, I'm almost positive he's like reading one of those, like, letters that someone would send in to one of those magazines. Well, and, and regardless, to that point, these guys are finding what it is about their lives that are allowing them to, quote, live. And I think that's what influences Neil. Because on the, prior to him hilariously scolding Todd, he is elated at the fact that he is wanting to try out for this play. And Todd is kind of playing the Debbie Downer. He's like, well, your dad's never going to go for that. And he kind of cuts at him. He says, well, you know, wh what are you doing? Are you my dad, essentially? It stopped. You know, let me have this moment for a minute. And then he basically he, he keeps spouting off and he says, Nothing Mr. Keating says means crap to you, does it? And then I think at that moment, I start to realize, you know, Neil has been influenced. And yes, there's emotional stuff that's driving that. But he has a point. Because up to this point, Todd has experienced what these boys have experienced. He's not coming in when they're kind of getting the Dead Poets Society right. When they're reciting poetry and they're doing these amazing things. No, he was in there from the moment when they started throwing snacks on the ground with a half-eaten roll. You know, he was there when they were reading ghost stories. And when, uh, when Meeks was reading that, then I got religion. And then they start kind of doing their own chant. It, it's all these things that he was part of from the beginning. And I think that in some ways, Neil has a right to kind of poke at him a little bit. Cause he's like, to your point, Aaron, if you're in, you're in. This needs to, you need to feel something because this is something that's really important. And with that, I agree with. And I, I say all that to say, I don't think Neil was bullying him, but I think in this day and age as an adult, I have those thoughts going in and thinking without context, that's not cool. But within context, it's like, this is my little brother. We've been through this. I know you well enough at this point to say, this is what you need. And I think it would also give him the, I guess the credibility to throw a desk set off of a bridge. You know, it's those types of things that give him that kind of ownership. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the supporting cast because I think they're top notch. I love Robert Sean Leonard. I love Ethan Hawke. I love Josh Charles specifically. 
Uh, there's a question that I wanted to ask that's not in the notes, and that's really, as characters, you know, these are high school boys, did you guys connect with any of them as, like, I was that guy, or did you know any of these types of characters that we met in this movie when you were going through your high school experience at all? Oh, I absolutely connect with Todd. I, I'm very, I'm very inside myself and introverted and, uh, you know, have a hard time talking to people and, uh, you know, breaking out of my shell. Um, and, you know, I struggle with, uh, with self-confidence and it really hits hard when, uh, um, when Keating says to him that you, uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but you think that everything inside you is, is, you know, wretched and worthless. And man, that just kills. <laughs> Because I, I, I know what that feels like. Uh, I'm beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm Knox, and you probably know that. But, like, <laughs> yes. I mean, I am I grew up girl-obsessed. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's just how I was. And it, relationship was very important to, my, to me at that time in my life. And I am the guy who, I, I mentioned earlier, I wrote poetry. It's not like I did it just for fun. Like everything was a like 90% love poem, 10% like meditation type poem, you know, on life. But it, it was generally from a place of wanting to win a girl's heart. So I'm that guy. I'm the guy who's going to like make the stupid move to hit on the girl who's got a jock boyfriend because that's to me, that's being brave and stepping out. And so I'm going to do that, right? That's, that's my path. And so while I think elements of different Kids have been part of my high school years and different times in my life. Knox overwhelmingly would be the one who is using these creative parts of himself in a way to express his deep desire to love someone and be in relationship. That's that's just me. Yeah, that's 100%. 100% you. <laughs> I I struggled with this because there was who I want to, to think of myself as and then who I actually was. And I mean, Meeks probably is the one that I would gravitate towards because I was always around somebody else. I was never my own person. Pitts was probably who I would probably say I'm the most like because <laughs> I I would have a most unusual name. I would be called out by the teacher and I would feel really awkward reading a poem called To the Virgins to Make Much of Time. I mean, I would feel his, his awkwardness. Um, but I envision myself being Luanda, you know, painting a bolt of lightning on my chest and being the guy who would prank the principal. But I knew that would never happen. That was always the guy that I wanted to be because I thought that was bold and ballsy. But I would never be able to dish out the, or, take the punishment that was dished out to me. So probably a combination or a, a tie between Meeks and Pitts, for sure. Well, in the end, Keating gets fired, uh, Charlie gets expelled, Neil dies, and presumably, presumably, not presumably, I don't know why I said it that way, but presumably the others that stood up at the end commit educational suicide. I have no idea. That's something we have to speculate about. But I wonder... What is the message for us as an audience and how do you feel about whatever message that that is at this age versus when you saw it first? If there's actually a long time frame, it sounds like there, are, there is based off of um, our one-word takeaways. Well, 
I think it depends on who you relate to in the story, and that that also goes along with, like you said, when now versus uh, when I first saw it. I actually don't remember when I first saw this. Uh, I imagine it was in high school or thereabouts. But yeah, I, I primarily just related to the the kids before and and saw how they uh, how his teaching inspired them to live their lives and what happened to Neil affected them. But at this age. I've been through uh, some more milestones in life, and I feel like I have a lot more holistic perspective on it. And I think the message, I can see the message relating in a number of different ways uh, for a number of different characters. From a father perspective, as a father myself, I can see that it's good to want your child to succeed, but you don't want to do so in a cold manner. You don't want to like force them into a certain mold and uh and make them feel trapped institutions can learn from it to not be so tied down to tradition that they're unable to appreciate innovation teachers have the message that they have a very special responsibility i mean you you look at keating here this is presumably his first teaching job and i i don't think we're even expected to think that he did a perfect job the while it's not his fault what all happened he probably should have uh could have recognized that there was there were limitations on how much he could inspire and, and push them to their own greatness. And like I said, the boys themselves, showed, uh, students, teen, teens, young adults uh, looking at this can, uh, well, really anybody can be inspired to make more of their life and to seize the day because, you know, eventually we'll all be pushing up daffodils. Yeah, it, I mean, definitely sees the day, I think, is timeless, for sure. Carpe diem has become iconic as a phrase because of this movie, and rightfully so. It's such a simple, simple thing to say, two words, and yet it's inspirational to a man every single time you hear it, and it's something that you can apply to your life at any point in it, on any given day, no matter what your situation is, at any given minute, you could apply and be well, do well to be reminded to seize the day, literally multiple times a day, just to, to refocus yourself and apply the principles here. So I think that is huge. I think that being a free thinker is important at any point in history. And so I hate to say, oh, it's more important now than it was then. It's it's as important as it ever has been, which is always important <laughs> to be able to figure out who you want to be and not conform to something that is a tradition or a custom and that or that someone else is telling you is what you need to do, that you have a right and you have a responsibility to do the research yourself, to explore how you feel and why you feel that way. And then to make your own choices safely within reason and learn from them, whether they're mistakes or not, because you're going to make some and to support each other, you know, while doing it and just the freedom for us to be told by someone that is so inviting and so soft and just loving as someone like a Robin Williams character in this movie I think still hits home today. I mean, it did to me rewatching it now 
20 years later, just feels like he's talking to me at so many points during this movie. I'm not a high school kid anymore, but I could still use a Keating in my life to keep me on track, you know, and to remind me of these things on a regular basis. And so, yeah, I think the message of the movie is absolutely timeless. And that is part of why it is such a favorite, like we talked about at the very beginning of the show, and why it's more than just people liking this movie. Most people who like it absolutely love it and adore it. And that's because it is just always going to be applicable. And I I wanted to mention, I don't think that Keating necessarily has anything to be sorry for. I really don't. I think he actually, there's a very important moment towards the end, right after the play, where I gain so much respect for him. And it elevates him above so many characters in other movies. And that is when Neil's father is ripping him embarrassingly out of the show. And Keating is like pushing the other boys back. And he does. He first he confronts the father a little bit, but he doesn't get into a physical confrontation and he doesn't tell the dad what to do with his son. And yes, it is ultimately so tragic that Neil takes his life in this movie. It's not what anybody wants, right? It's not what Keating wants as a character. It's not what we want in real life. And it's not what Neil's dad wanted either. But I think that that scene plays out pretty much right. Like, it's not Professor Keating's place in that moment to upend the authority of the father to take his high school teenage son home. You know what I mean? Now, he's made his influence. And he's he's attempted to talk to the dad a little bit. But at that point, his role is to step back from that situation and regroup, keep the other boys away and let that go. And, and I don't think he has anything at all ever to feel like he did something wrong or that led to Neil's death. I don't feel like this is. And, and it, it's interesting, Patrick, because I think that there are a lot of people who would watch this today and the way the world works. And they would blame him and they would be like, it's on you because you didn't step in and push hard enough to save that kid from going home and killing himself. That's not correct. That's wrong, in my opinion. Neil made a choice and it sucks. He was depressed. He was hurting. He needed more help. And I think that Keating did a pretty good job, to be honest with you. Uh, and I, I, don't know, I don't know why I wanted to say that, but, you know, we have a friend, uh, Josh Berkey, who runs a whole website that's devoted to promoting mental health awareness, victims and villains. Um, Coles Davis, one of our co-hosts is actually a, a co-host for him and, and does some reviews for him as well. Great, great show that is all about awareness. And especially when we're talking about a Robin Williams <laughs> character, who is a man who had his own issues with depression and his own disease that eventually led to him taking his own life because he, he, he got to the point where he just couldn't, live with it anymore and so it's a tragedy and it's always going to be a tragedy but blaming people that are still alive for it is not the way to go and so i just i don't know i feel very strong i just wanted to like kind of make my personal <laughs> point out there that i don't think he's in any way responsible or did anything wrong aaron white for the defense well, ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not i'm not trying to blame him i'm just suggesting that there was it was a very challenging situation 
there was no outward sign that Neil was at risk of committing suicide. It, it comes as a shock to everybody. It comes as a shock as, as a viewer. It comes as a shock to everybody in the film. But as a, a new, a new teacher, Keating is, is trying to draw this, uh, this greatness out of Neil. I'm not saying that he's wrong for it. I'm not saying that he's at fault. It's just possible that if he were, you know, had more experience, you know, was further along in years, that maybe he would have pushed just a little less hard, recognizing that what his father was like, that the fact that Neil said exactly what his father would say, would say, would be what he would say. Like I said, I'm not blaming Keating. He, he was, he was young. And he didn't do or say anything wrong. I'm just saying it's possible that with some more experience, it just might have gone a little differently. And that's really the mess- one of the messages that I pulled from it, uh, along with what you guys are saying, is that there has to be a balance between being able to think for yourself and being able to understand the world around you. And I think in some ways Keating demonstrated that because of the fact that he was working in a school that he honored the traditions, honored the ways in which things were being done. He did things unconventionally, but didn't break the rules. He allowed the Dead Poets Society to happen, but didn't give them the information to go do it themselves. And I think what he shows us as a teacher is that people, not just kids, but people are going to satisfy their curiosity. They're going to satisfy that need to know more and they're curious about the world. People are curious. We're curious from the very moment that we can breathe and see and crawl and then walk and then read and then watch. All these things are a direct result of the fact that we as human beings are curious about the world and we're going to figure them out in some way, shape or form. And what I see as valuable about this movie is that it doesn't always end pretty. That even the best intentions, the best influences, the best motivations cannot change the choices that individuals make. But it doesn't negate the fact that we need teachings in our lives. We need mentors. We need people who believe in us, who understand us on an intimate level to a point where they can say things like what Keating says to Neil or what Keating says to Todd because there is an investment there. I don't know of a lot of teachers in my life, a lot of people in my life that I've allowed that kind of vulnerability. But when those people have come around, it's been pretty earth shattering because you can hear truth being spoken because they know you that that well they know you that intimately but it takes a mutual sense of being vulnerable in order to gain that i think there's a there's a saying in in the world that i live in in my kind of faith-based circles that i want people to know the real me i want people to know me intimately and i'm like well what are you giving back in order to let them know you because it has to go both ways and that's something that i think keating wants to do he doesn't want to just kind of get to know these boys in the most like personal way possible he understands that in order to influence them in order to put them on a path or set them in motion 
they've got to be willing to give a piece of themselves up as well. And I think that's why there are such, there's a motif in this movie that I, I was reading about in, in preparing for the episode tonight of Keating is only once or twice, I'm sorry, twice is by himself. Every other time that we see Keating, he is with somebody else, talking to somebody, having a conversation, walking with a group of people, which is kind of a way of showing that he is an influencer. He is someone who people gravitate towards. Do I want to be someone who people gravitate towards? I mean, yeah, there's an egotistical part of me that feels that way. But then I have to ask myself, what is it about that that I want? Do I want the grandiose fame? Do I want to feel like I'm a great person? Well, then I turn into a wealthy professor at that point. <laughs> and I wanted to create clones. And to your point, Aaron, what you said earlier, I do agree with that. I think Welton professors, teachers, they want to create clones. Keating wants to create disciples. He wants to see people who influence the world by being influenced by how he lives his life, which is why his teaching methods are so influential because he's not trying to show off. He's trying to get these guys to understand methods so that they can go influence the world in ways that no, no other person can and that they have kids who do the same thing. And yes, it's tragic what happens. It's tragic in a lot of ways of what happens to Neil and what happens to Nwanda, what happens to Keating. But like anything, good or bad, positively or negatively influenced, there's going to be consequences. Those consequences could be positive or negative. I tell my son this all the time. A consequence is not necessarily a negative thing. The consequence for you cleaning your room five days a week is that you get ice cream. They call that a reward. It's just a different way of, it's what happens when you choose to make this choice because you understand what will happen after that. Same way with a punishment where if you don't do these things, you're not going to be read to tonight. You know, it's so I think what I've pulled away from this is the fact that we have to understand that the world around us is not necessarily full of free, free thinkers and doesn't need to be. And the world around us is not necessarily full of traditionalists who don't want to change and it doesn't have to be that it's a balance of both and when we can live in a world where both of those exist, I think it makes the world better because those two components need each other. We need the stability of tradition to learn from and live in in order to be able to impact the world when things need to change. And that's a hard lesson to learn, especially from someone like me who likes things the way they are. I like the status quo. And when things kind of shake up, <laughs> I guess that's why I'm pits or I'm mixed because I'm like, Okay, I'll go along with this, but it's really freaking me out. Uh, so, yeah, there it is. I think that's the big message that I pulled away from it in a clumpy way, if you can get that. <laughs> All right, well, it is connecting point time. Get your ears ready to hear some great moments that stood out to us. And, Jacob, we'll start with you. All right, my connecting point is Keating's one-on-one -on -one with Neil. This is where uh, Keating proves his value as a mentor. It's where we see him at his most, uh, his most tender, his most sensitive, but uh, also his most tough, actually, um, offering tough love. These boys have been doing some irresponsible things and trying to act on his bold ideas, but he's not intending to be teaching them to rebel. He's challenging them to suck the marrow out of life, but that doesn't mean choking on the bone. 
So here, here we see him offering, uh, like I said, his version of tough love. He knows it would be disastrous for Neil to lie to his father, even though, even if it's a lie of not telling, you know, if Neil just did the play without even talking to his father. But he knows it would be disastrous, not just disastrous to uh, his uh, Neil and his father's relationship, but also to Neil's own character. He knows that if he is dishonest with his father in this way, that if he acts against uh, against his father's will, that it would it would just it would uh, be catastrophic catastrophic to his character. He would know that he had done this thing, and it would affect him from that point on, as the way any kind of deceit or uh, unethical actions does affect a person so in this conversation with neil here he's refusing to accept anything less than neil having the courage to talk to his father and getting permission for the play it's it's not about you know his lesson his teaching them to be daring and to seize the day isn't about being reckless and choking on the bone here he's telling him no you need you need to do the right thing you need to go talk to your father and when Neil tries to make excuses, he, he doesn't put up with it. He says, the only way this is going to work is if you go talk to your father. And he says, well, it's tomorrow. And he says, then I guess you better go talk to him before tomorrow. And you have to express your that this it means something to you. It's not just a whim that this is you. You are feeling this with every every part of your being. And you are passionate about it, and you have to somehow convince him that. But at the same time, part of Neil's objection is he knows what his father will say, and he knows that his father will object to it. And even though uh, Keating doesn't accept that, it's actually true. <laughs> we, Neil does know his father well enough to know that this is this is true, and you know this is what leads to their confrontation after the play and him just feeling like he's now trapped like he he didn't talk to his father we we presume because of the way his father reacted i mean i i believe he lied to keating about having talked to his father because his father showed up and he said the way i forget exactly what he said but the way he reacted to, uh, implies that he did not give permission and now uh you know he lays down the ultimatum this is going to send him to military school and it's more than than, uh, than Neil can handle. So they have this heart to heart. Like I said, this is my connecting point, and there's so much wrapped up in that. You know, it's it's Keating offering tough love, but at the same time, it's Neil recognizing the truth of the situation, and he's already trapped at that point, and he's trying to find a way out of it, but there there is no way out of it, and it's just <laughs> it's just horrible. Yeah, that's good. And I, let me just say this as a side note: Kurtwood Smith is is just great as a bad guy. Like he's just a a good bad father. He's just plays an angry individual. I've seen him in so many different things where he's just so angry, and uh, he's he's perfect for that role. And you know, in the most sincere way possible, he's very much a great kind of antithesis to Neil's optimism. But yet, he's not a villain. He right. actually does want what's best for his son. He wants him to succeed yeah. in a way that he never did, yeah. which is what makes it all the more tragic. You know, he's he's trying to do what's best for his son, but he he has limited vision and doesn't see the the mental health uh, issues that he's contributing to. Yeah, for sure. He sees what's best for his son, 
through his eyes of what he thinks is best for him. He is selfish, and that is his villainy, in my opinion. But that is, it's, you're right, not a traditional villain, but it is the age-old problem and the big old problem that I see with the world today still is the selfishness. It's all about him. It's his lens. It's what he, it's what he defines as being a successful life. It's not what Neil would define as being a successful life. It's only what his father defines. And so it is hard for me to have any like sympathy for his perspective on this, um, and him pushing. Not, not sadness for the, the, what happens, of course. But that's a villainy that every father is subject to. Yep. We could all fall into that. We may, you know, it may not be as harsh, you know, but we can all fall into the desire to, you know, see our kid straying from what we believe is best for them and come down hard on them. And we're all capable of it. Very powerful. Very powerful. The moment for me that stood out this time around was the poetry reading with Tide and Mr. Keating. And I think that the reason why is because in that moment, Todd understood that there was something great inside of him. And the way it is shot is just absolutely fantastic. The camera just slowly starts to rotate and then it speeds up as Todd is creating this poem from memory and having Keating just continue to close his eyes and just to block out the world. And then eventually see Keating back up, take his hand off of Todd's face, back up, kneel down and to see him emote in a way with his, with his arms, like, yes, keep going. He's not just creating a poem. He is actually digging deep and living in that moment. And I think that's what Keating is trying to drive out of him. And the one thing at the very end that stood out to me, the thing that kind of put an exclamation point on this scene was Keating puts his hand I think around Todd's neck and I think he holds him almost like a dad does to a son. And he says, don't you forget this. And from that moment, we don't see Todd become Neil. You know, he doesn't become this outspoken guy. We see him just move on, but he's almost like taking this medicine. He's taking this moment and the rest of the story, the rest of the movie he is digesting that moment through the lens of everybody else. And it, it just, uh, it, it comes to fruition, not fruition, but it plays itself out in such a tender moment where he runs out of the school, which I, I found out reading the IMDb trivia, this was originally supposed to be done in, indoors, but the director thought it would be really fantastic to have it done outdoors. It's when he runs into the snow crying and starts getting sick. It was one take. Like this was not shot more than once. And I watched this performance by Ethan Hawke and I'm like, in that moment, I feel like everything that Keating was teaching him, all this stuff that he was feeling, it was almost like replicated in that moment where the, the, 
the passion and the frustration and the anger and the fear and all that stuff that was going through the 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 poem about Whitman or influenced by Whitman came out again in that moment in the snow, but it wouldn't have happened had he not had that moment to experience really just letting himself go there. And it's just a powerful scene and Ethan Hawke just nails it. Yeah, that's that's actually my runner runner up scene for connecting point because that yeah you're right the way the camera moves is just masterful of uh of where uh where's direction and uh it's like a, a father teaching a child to ride a bike the way he's holding him at first and spurring him out challenging him to uh you know to to not think too hard about what he's doing just to to feel it and then like you said when he lets go and goes and kneels you know that's like the father releasing his hand from the child as they're on the bike and watching them, <laughs> watching them go and sitting there and, uh, in admiration and the child, you know, feels the, the pride that they actually accomplished it. So yeah, you're, you're saying it's like a, a father and a child is, is spot on. Yeah. 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 What's my runner up too? And, and the reason is because of the quote beforehand. I, well, it's Ethan Hawke. It's multiple reasons, but like it, the fact that it, results in this raw expulsion of emotion which is kind of like my thing pretty much is like i i really like that and i experience that often in my own daily life whether it's love passionate desire whether it's anger rage it's frustration like i feel like part of why this podcast exists the way it does like i feel very strongly and i express myself in that way and so i relate to this when i see him letting it all just go instead of keeping it bottled in. And I love the quote at the beginning of this, what Keating tells him, he says, sometimes the most beautiful poetry can be about simple things like a cat <laughs> or a flower or the rain. You see poetry can come from anything with the stuff of revelation in it. Just don't let your poems be ordinary. And that's the part I like the don't let your poems be ordinary. Don't do it just to get up there and say, roses are red, violets are blue and do it. If you're going to do it, make it real, make it interesting. And that is what is interesting about poetry, in my opinion, is it doesn't always make sense. It's not always this perfect rhyming thing. It's just a freely expressing, blah, that's not a word. It's a free expression of whatever your emotions are, whatever your thoughts are. It's I love stream of conscious writing for this reason, and that's what this was. This was very stream of conscious, close your eyes, let the world go away from you. And what... What's on your heart? What's on your mind? And let it just just speak it out. And this is a great exercise. And I think it leaves a person feeling better uh, and feeling different and, and changed. So it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Sorry. My, yeah, my backup too. It's also really powerful to me because, like I said, I relate to most uh, personally to Todd myself. And it just it feels like magic seeing uh, Keating extract <laughs> this poetry out of uh you know this this kid who thinks that he has nothing to offer and and is too scared to uh, to say anything and he pulls this greatness out of him this expression like you said this uh this free flowing expression is just magical <laughs> to someone uh that can uh can identify with where Todd's coming from okay now I'll go so 
minus the ending of the film. And yes, look, I know it's a little melodramatic and I've actually seen it criticized in reviews for being the worst part of the film, which is funny to me because the whole movie is melodramatic. So it's like, it fits. I don't understand. To me, it plays out perfectly with Keating coming into his room to retrieve his things and Nolan, who's standing in for him, finding out through Cameron, a.k.a. the Dirty Rat, that all of the desired pages that he wants to go through in the intro to this poetry book have been torn out. And I just I love the way that that becomes known to him. And he is like, okay, fine, like then go to the next page. And then they're like, no, they're all torn out. And, And like it's in all books and just the look on his face as he's like trying to process what the heck is going on and what they mean. And I think simultaneously, many of the boys in that very moment, starting to think about what that meant to them, remembering back to that moment and linking it with their feelings for Professor Keating now, as he's there about to walk out the door for the last time. And of course, Todd standing up and arguing that it wasn't Keating's fault and ultimately jumping up on the desk and giving the most famous thing, the, Oh, captain, my captain scream there. And many of the other boys following along behind him of their own volition, nobody being pressured, totally a by choice thing. What I really like about this And it emphasizes my one word takeaway. Oh, it wasn't my one word takeaway. That's right. I changed it to form. Individuality was one of those other three words that I had written down, but it emphasizes individuality. I love the close-ups because we get to zoom in on their faces and we get to see their unique individual expressions of what this means to them to be standing on that desk, paying their respects and showing Keaton what it means to them. They know that this act is not going to change the outcome. They're doing it to say, we love you. And they're doing it in a way that is an exact representation of what he teaches them of how to express themselves. Not always going to manifest itself in standing up on your desk, but it relates to what he has taught them. And for him, it's the perfect message to send. And I love that because they're being who he wanted them to be. They are owning their choices. They're taking that and running with it and being who they feel confident they should be in that moment. And they're okay with that. They're okay with whatever the consequences are. They know that they're doing the right thing. And it's absolutely beautiful. And equally beautiful are his last words to them. Just saying, thank you, boys. Thank you. It is the perfect understanding for both the teacher and the students that his influence on their lives was not for nothing and that it will not be fleeting, that it has changed them forever. And it is just so freaking beautiful and it is so hopeful and I ball every single time that I watch it. And so I don't understand why people don't like it. I was reading about it. And it actually hurt my soul to read this. But in Roger Ebert's review, he said this about this final scene. He said, well, Dead Poet Society, uh, or he said it, he called it emotionally manipulative and intellectually shallow. He actually gave the movie two stars. 
And of this moment, he says, it is, of course, inevitable that the brilliant teacher will eventually be fired from the school. And when his students stood on their desks to protest his, his dismissal, I was so moved, I wanted to throw up. And that's, I, I'm shocked, to be honest, that like those words would come out of Roger Ebert's mouth, because I feel like this is the kind of movie that usually I definitely align with him in the emotional aspects of what it is evoking in us. But I, I just completely disagree with that. It's one of the rare times that I disagree with Ebert. I think it is extremely moving. And again, I go back to that word hopeful. You want to leave a movie on a hopeful note. That's the best feeling ever. And you want to believe that our characters are better for whatever, whatever they just went through, whatever the experiences are. And frankly, in a movie that is so relatable for its audience, for us to believe that we can experience that same hope if we approach these life choices in the same way that Keating has taught them ourselves. So that's, it has to be my connecting point because of that. Well, yeah, I, I'm like you. I align myself with Roger Ebert, but in this particular case, I would say suck it, you know, because it's just a great moment. And the look, the bagpipes just add to that greatness. I love, love, love the music in that moment, and uh, it's a great way to end the movie. Well, this is a great way to end the podcast, and that'll do it for this edition of Feeling Film. Jacob, thanks again for joining us. Um, where can people find you and connect with you to talk about this movie or movies in general? You can find me in the Feeling Film Group on uh, Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at JJ Starflyer. And you can find me on uh, Letterboxd as Jake Neff. Uh, and I'm pretty active there, vlogging everything and reviewing some things. Great stuff. Well, we're taking the next several days off to reset a bit and get ready for the second half of our Batman v Superman Spectacular but we will be going back to 1978 for Richard Donner's original Superman the movie, or Superman as it's called now, because there were other movies after it. In the meantime, you've got lots of content out there from FF Pluses to the FF Black Label to some bonus content direct to our patrons that uh, you should be looking forward to. And if you can't find it, you should go to patreon.com slash film and become a patron so you can check that stuff out. Aaron, Jacob, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.